0: Welcome to Section. I'm Kian, and I'm bringing you this week's Scientists of the Week segment. We are honored today to have Dr. Mohit Bandari, Professor and Associate Chair of Research at McMaster University's Department of Surgery and Canada Research Chair in Evidence-Based Orthopedics. Thanks for coming to our show, Dr. Bandari.
1: Oh, I'm uh, delighted to be here, Kian.
0: It's our pleasure. So let's start with some fun questions so our audience can get to know you a bit better. Is that okay?
1: Oh, absolutely, sure.
0: So what makes you laugh the most?
1: Well, actually, I would say um, watching my 12-year-old daughter, um, basically all the time. I mean, I laugh a lot with her, so it, it brings you, it brings me great joy to uh, to have her in my life.
0: <laughs> that sounds awesome. And if you could meet the slash work with any scientist dead or alive, who would it be?
1: Ha huh, let me think here. <clears throat> I would have to say um, I've been particularly interested. Now, I'm not by any means um, a neuroscientist. I'm not by any means a basic scientist, but uh, Richard Feynman is someone that I have watched a lot of videos on, and um, I suspect your your viewers know who he is. But uh, for me, it was not the fact that he won the Nobel Prize, I guess, in uh, the early 1960s, I think. But it was the fact that he had so many other interests. I am a drummer, and so I uh, was very attracted to the fact that he enjoyed playing the drums and bongos and had all kinds of other creative interests. So for me, it was a lot of his creative side as well and his curiosity that excited me.
0: That sounds awesome. Um, Now, moving on to your uh, professional life. So you're the founder of OrthoEvidence, which is a knowledge dissemination tool in orthopedics. Uh, Can you tell us why you decided to found OrthoEvidence and what is its importance for the orthopedic community?
1: Sure. Um, You know, the the big challenge that I had was I spent well a big part of my life um, working and developing research and you know publishing papers. And we would do all this research; we'd spend years, spend millions of dollars from government funding, and then we wouldn't have a portal to get that message out to the rest of the world. And the challenge we were facing was people would ask me the the most common question I get asked around the world when I presented the work was. Dr. Bindari, where? how do you keep up with information? It was fine 20, 30 years ago when there was a single journal, but even yourself as a student, uh, you realize that the volume of information now is a hundredfold, a thousandfold, and it continues to double every five years. So ortho evidence really was a tool to say, as, as there are other areas, but within orthopedics was a tool to say, let us do the heavy lifting. Let us look around the World Wide web let's find the best available scientific evidence, let's filter it down, let's critique it, and let's make key summaries so people can get bite-sized insights, but they can do it in a way um, that gives them a chance to keep up with the world literature. So let me just give you one other statement that I think puts it in perspective. In modern day right now, if we were to rely on a single journal and say, you know, we're gonna get all our knowledge from a single journal, in our field in orthopedic surgery, you would end up missing 90% of the best available science um, that's out there. So we can no longer rely on that. There are about 160 some odd journals in orthopedic surgery alone that one should be reading. It's impossible. So that was the purpose. It was almost like, I wouldn't say a Coles Notes, because some of your viewers probably don't, uh, don't know what a Coles Notes is, but it was a summarized version of, of scientific evidence uh, and critiqued and appraised.
0: Um, That sounds awesome. For sure it is important to have this knowledge dissemination because a lot of times the public feels disconnected actually from science because of that reason that you mentioned, because it's too much information and they don't feel as if they have access to all of this information. So with regards to uh, your career, we see a lot that uh, it is evidence-based. So can you tell us about evidence-based sciences and research?
1: Sure. I mean, I would think at every single level and probably no more poignant than now in the last six months, right? Have we seen the real challenge of trying to get signal and noise? And the problem with evidence, and we always say that word with such powerful connotation, is we believe it should be high quality. If you look at just, just look at COVID, what's happened in the recent months, we were part of what the WHO called an info epidemic. March 11th is when they declared the A pandemic globally. And they said, listen, there's going to be a lot of information coming out. We've got to get to the best stuff. So what is high quality evidence? And I think that's the purpose of evidence-based medicine, right? The purpose of evidence-based medicine is to ask questions that are going to be important to patients. But if you're talking about evidence in a broader sense of science, it's just asking important questions that matter to people. From that, you go backwards and you say, okay, what are the tools that we have at our Display at this point to be able to answer these questions in the most valid way. We in experimental research use the word randomized clinical trial. That may be something that you know a lot of the viewers or or your, a lot of your listeners may be interested in. But you know, it is a experimental design that tries to limit bias. Right? I mean, humans have a desire to say I believe something, and you know, and your own desire for something to happen can make it happen if we don't build in safeguards. So, so much of evidence based practice. And, and the way we think about it is to find high quality research uh, towards signal and try to, you know, limit the degree of noise. There's lots of reasons, Keon, why, why noise infiltrates the system. And we just saw it in COVID, right? Many, many reasons, po- political, uh, commercial, uh, conflicts of interest, all sorts of things get in the way.
0: For sure. And it is important during these times that we are in uh, with a lot of, false information actually being moved from
1: one hand to the other. Um, oh, and, and here, and you know what I'll do is, um, so, um, just, I, I'd, I'd like you, I'd like you to take a guess or a, 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 you know, an educated guess on how many papers do you think were published between January 1 and end of March So on that first, you know, three month period, just under you know twelve weeks or so, when we were in the peak of the COVID, right? Now, how many papers do you think on COVID were published during that that three month period, from start to beginning?
0: I, I assume scientists might have been aware of it, so probably around um, hundred.
1: Hundred. So, would you be shocked that it was seventeen hundred and forty three papers were published wow. over twelve weeks? And by the way if you've ever submitted a paper for publication, you will realize that the process itself can often take a year to get, you know, and then for the paper to actually make it into the journal can sometimes be 18 months, sometimes even two years, you know, so it can be long, long, long. These papers were from the time they were submitted to the time they were in the journal, on average were 10 days. Mm-hmm. So when things are rushed, what happens, right? There's risk of problems. So that's when noise gets into the system. It was a hot topic and everyone was jumping on board. And that is, really the reason why we have to be really really cautious especially in times of crisis where information is everywhere and then you as an individual have to say how do I figure out what is truth and what is not
0: for sure when it comes to science usually we are dealing with uncertainty so when it comes for example to finding that if eating breakfast in the morning is useful or not uh, when public who is certainly not really interested in science wants to get the answer um, they try to look for the answer, but they find conflicting solutions to the problem. So, with regards to breakfast, some sources say that you have to have a breakfast. Some say it's not necessary, and that is kind of the nature of science—that uncertainty. So, so is there any solution for this so public kind of doesn't get bored with this uncertainty in sciences, and at the same time we can also have an have a nice uh, solution for them.
1: Well, I wish there was a full solution because what we have seen. Um, historically is, uh, you know, one type of nutritional supplement or diet approach uh, is, you know, is is in favor. There's lots of publications. And then a secondary approach comes forward and it it debunks the first one. And then people start questioning it. Some of this is just, you know, the ebb and flow of as we, um, you know, get research um, and we confirm it. The biggest challenge right now is we should be very, very cautious in a single study to ever make the leap to say we have answered the question. I don't believe that happens very often. In fact, most studies that were conducted, especially those that are conducted in patients or whether it's in humans, you know, we're doing human human research, clinical research, we say, um, requires reproducibility. That's the big part of it. So, and also small studies of a few hundred patients often have very different findings from studies of a thousand or 10,000 patients. And there's lots of reasons why that is. But the fundamental point is that we often cherry pick or the media, let's say, as an example, could cherry pick ideas that are either newsworthy, but also hit a narrative. They know that this is going to strike a chord and they will use that narrative. We've seen that happen in COVID, lots and lots. lots. One treatment works, one treatment doesn't. So the big thing here is we need to see enough history of reproducibility. It needs to be reproduced in many, many different populations as well as in many different countries and many different types of studies. So the more we see, the more comfort we get that this may in fact be a true signal over noise.
0: For sure. And with your experience with regards to evidence-based research, do you think public trusts in it, especially since a lot of us actually might be more comfortable with what has been done before, compared to what research says, because it just gives us that feeling of comfort. So do you think public can trust in evidence-based research or procedures?
1: Well, I mean, I think the whole paradigm of why evidence-based medicine was created was, it was was really to be more uh, skeptical about exactly what you're saying, the experts. So, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley, for example, and you look at, you know, the entrepreneurs, they look at experts as really problematic. They say, well, the experts aren't predicting the future. They're actually extrapolating from the past. So they look at their own last 15 cases and they say, look, you know, I do well with this procedure because you see I've had no problems. There are a lot of inherent biases in the way that approach works because we don't have a control. And the power that evidence-based medicine came on and says, you know what, there are different hierarchies of the way we look at information. There is the expert, which we would consider to be, quite frankly, the one of the lower levels of evidence. Then there might be the series of patients. So the expert says, okay, don't just believe me. Look, I have 1,500, I have 500 patients that I've treated with this problem, and look, they've all been successful. That's one level up in terms of quality, because you say, okay, at least now we have a series of patients in which you've done it, not just your belief. One level up is, well, you have to add a control. Well, listen, in patients who got this treatment, here were the outcomes. But in patients who didn't get this treatment, here were the outcomes. And in fact, you can see my treatment led to better outcomes. Okay, that's still better than not. But that very, very most powerful tool we have, and I mentioned it to you already, is randomization, which is the doc and the patient don't know what they've received. It's hard in surgery, because surgery you have to do the procedure. But let's say it was a, a pill. Let's say it was one of the treatments for COVID. You'd want that that you, you'd want the patient not to know what they received and you want the physician not to know what they received because we call that a blinded study. And in doing that, if there is a difference, you can attribute for the most part that difference, hopefully, to the fact that they received, you know, an active or a placebo treatment. That's a very powerful design um, and was one of the big reasons why the movement itself has been so strong. So I would say that patients, community members, you know, scientists, typically believe in that same paradigm, which is good scientific um, experiment uh, leading to a result far more than here's what I did before and it seems to work.
0: That sounds awesome. And it's really interesting to see where this evidence-based research goes in the future and what future holds for it. Now, moving on to your personal life, actually. Oh. Um, so for sure, you lead a, a very busy life. What activities do you rely on to balance your professional life?
1: Well, you know, um, let me tell you this. I, I have in the last probably two years changed the paradigm with which I tend to work. I used to believe, and I suspect there are many early, uh, you know, there are early career students, they are graduate students, and there are probably lots and lots of uh, people just working, you know, for early career props who have the same belief, which is success comes from doing more of the same is if you know if i if i write 5 publications i should write 500 and 500 is going to be better than 5 and the more i write the better i'm going to get and that approach of doing more of the same so work you know if, if a little bit of work got me success more work will get me more eventually we'll plateau and i came to that realization about 2 years ago and because of that i switched out the way i think and if you'll indulge me i'll I'll tell you kind of a little bit about what i do now which is i think for me personally fundamentally changed the way work, but also fundamentally uh, improve the enjoyment with which my work happens. So I use this acronym now called THINK, T-H-I-N-K. And the T for me is try new things. So I now am looking for new activities, new things to try. I don't have to be great at them. I don't have to be very good at them. I just have to be able to try them and experience different things, whether it's new people, new collaborations, uh, working with new students traveling, you know, all the different things that could be out there, including being a bit more risk taking the work I do. It's easy to say, but hard to do, is ultimately you have to have fun. If you don't enjoy what you do in your day-to-day life, it will absolutely impact you and it'll impact the people around you. So rather than say passion, I think that word is overused and probably under, underappreciated. But the fact is you have to enjoy what you do. So you've chosen a career path. Who knows where life will take, you can But the truth of the matter is, the minute it becomes real um, um, disheartening to wake up and go to work, or wake up and do the thing you do, you have to think, why am I doing this? And so for me, it was more about readjusting things and to, and to, to find areas where I really enjoy. Because when you have fun, you're more curious. When you're more curious, you ask interesting questions. When you ask interesting questions, you get interesting answers. And that allows you to, you know, to become more and more successful. I was going to say also that the I part of it is for me is invest, invest in, tw- in the 20%. You may have heard of something called the Pareto principle. I don't know if you've heard of that term, but the Pareto principle basically is, you know, is based off of an economist some years ago one decades and decades ago who had talked about this one theory, which is 20% of, it's a twenty eighty rule basically, right? So I, I frame it the following way identify 20% of the things in your life that give you 80% of your joy. And usually it's a couple of things. It's not like 20. If you have 20 things, your list is way too big. If you have nothing, you need to start thinking about things, you know, and, and rearranging your life a bit. But find those two or three things. And so for me, it was, you know, meaningful relationships. It was a sense of adventure. It was, I like I quite like art. So I, you know, I said, I'm going to invest more in that. Um, and I'll see, I like data and I like data-driven decisions. So I want to make sure that in my work, I'm making sure I get lots of opportunities to, to be using data to help make decisions. The end part is failure, never fear failure. So the, you know, the challenge I see in my 12-year-old and the challenge I see in myself often is sometimes it's much easier as it is to take the easy road than to take the higher, uh, more risky road. And again, finding those opportunities for stretch experiences, experiences where I would say, you know, you can probably do it, but you've never tried it, but you're within your skill level. That's what you have to be pushing every single, uh, you know, year to try something. So whatever that may be, I think it's really important. And I think for me, uh, starting in 2018. Uh, you know, at that time, I was uh, 49 years of age. I was just coming, just coming up to a half century. So, you know, you have these moments. I was sitting in Nepal with a friend. And that in itself was another story. But we're, we're, we're staring out in these mountains. I'm saying, how is it that I've lived this long and and not experienced this? This feeling of being at 10,000, some or 900 feet, you know, above sea level, staring out at the Himalayan, you know, and just, you know, breathing in that air. And, I felt at that point, things have to change. So the last part of the K is, no, it's okay to start again. So if you're early in your career, you can always start and think of of new avenues for your life. If you're senior and you think your career's over, you can start again. There's so many examples of individuals who have ultimately reinvented themselves. And so I think we often get this fearful concept that we don't have time. I All we have is time. So how we manage that time and how we use it, I think, is particularly important. I'll stop there, but i would give you a big diatribe. But that is the principle. And I have a lot of belief why I think building this concept, Keon, of a creative mindset is so important. In science, it's probably the penultimate of importance because you look at Nobel laureates. The majority of Nobel laureates have an artistic or a humanities based hobby, whether they're poets, whether they like narrative writing, whether they're artists, whether they like music, you know, whether they're interested in sports, whatever that may be, they do other things more so than you think, actually. And it's because they do those things, you know, it gives them an edge, I believe, over everybody else around them.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure students appreciate hearing that. From you. And I personally actually uh, learned more about this topic through one of your articles, uh, which was about fear and how it kind of interferes with our life. Um, oh,
1: right, right, yes, right. It, I, it's, a, it's a big motivator.
0: I really suggest everyone to follow you on LinkedIn because it is a great source of inspiration for everyone, for
1: sure. Oh, it's very kind of you. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. I mean, it, it's always it's always nice to meet someone who actually reads those <laughs> because <laughs> I put them out there. I must say, you know what it is? I, I started doing that sort of creative writing, on. For myself, like this became like, oh, I'm gonna write, and you know, I'm happy if you know if someone else finds it helpful. But I really do do them for myself in a way that it's almost therapeutic to write like that because it makes you think about those issues.
0: And if they can definitely help us as students who are taking the first steps in our career, and we can for sure use your advice uh, in these earlier steps.
1: Um, well, here we well, here. You know what? I I actually have a couple of stats here for you that I think it might be useful just just stating to hammer home the point that it's really important in your science or in your field um, to focus on what you do and to be good at it. But when you look at Nobel laureates over other highly successful scientists, so, you know, if you look at 40 scientists, of which a group of them get Nobel laureates, here's how they differentiate themselves. Nobel laureates are 22 times more likely than typical scientists to perform, to sing or act in their spare time. They're 12 times more likely to write creatively whether it's fiction or whether it's poetry, whether it's short stories, they're seven and a half times more likely to love crafting, wood turning, mechanics, glass blowing, working with their hands, and finally seven times more likely to enjoy designing, painting, drawing, and sculpting. Now, if that isn't uh, at least some data to help us think about, you know, being a bit broader and uh, exploring the things that we enjoyed as children, what else could be? Um, you know, to anyone listening, and you ask yourself this, and all of us are in this boat. Name one thing or more than one thing that you love to do in your childhood that you've just given up. And we can make a list. And you start saying, why? And then you go back and you try to reinvent those things again in your life when you're a bit, you know, when you have time. You always say, oh, I, have more, when I have more time. Well, that's all we have. So we exactly. should be prioritizing that a bit more. It yeah, will help yeah. us in our work.
0: For sure. Yeah. And as our final question, uh, so a lot of us as students usually get fascinated by success without knowing all the challenges that we're faced along the way. I'm sure being at your position right now, being the Canada Research Chair in uh, evidence-based orthopedics, being professor uh, and Associate Chair of Research at McMaster's Department of Surgery, these are, these are not things that happen easily. Can you tell us about some of the challenges that you faced along the way as a student?
1: Sure. I mean, the hardest challenge you're going to face, and I, I mean this really is, is finding something you really love to do. Um, You know, the majority of people that I've come across in my life um, have been successful, but they don't love what they do. They're just successful because they're bright and they're talented. That happens in university as well. A lot of bright and talented individuals who do very well, but don't necessarily love the work they do. So the number one challenge we all have is if you align yourself and find the one thing you're actually passionate about, and quite frankly, then you're good at it, that is a big part of, you know, moving forward. That's one. Second thing is, you have to be willing, um, and I look at myself too, didn't take a lot of risks early on, um, but I started doing so more so. You have to be willing to be strong enough to follow your conviction. So I'll give you an example. In 1994, I started my orthopedic surgical training. I'd graduated from the University of Toronto. I'd come to McMaster, and right around then it was when this whole movement of evidence-based medicine was happening. Now McMaster's department, uh, division of orthopedic surgery had never had prior, a trainee in their program take time away to pursue research. It hadn't happened. They said, no, 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 you are in the surgical training program. You will do what you will do and you will finish off. It wasn't that they were angry. They were just simply saying, it hasn't happened, so you shouldn't do it. Had I listened to my mentors at that time telling me, don't do this, this is not gonna go anywhere for you, I would have made a grave error. So it was something inside that said, I've got to do this. and so despite and it was the only reason I did it quite frankly was because I had this real desire to do it like it was it was burning to want to do this so I you know found ways to take a year ended up being three years away from surgical training had never been done in our program I was pretty well considered like oh he's just left orthopedic surgery. He's never coming back and in fact it came back and finished but we came back stronger and we then moved you know uh, this movement of evidence-based surgery forward would have never happened, Kian, if I didn't follow my heart. And so, you know, um, I think those are the challenges we face are often the internal uh, demons, so to speak, which is intellectually, I know I should do this. I don't love to do that, but I should, versus here's what I really want to do. Here's here's the person I want to become. And if you can figure that out, I mean, that's the hardest thing to do. If you figure that out, everything else is easy.
0: For sure. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, students would definitely appreciate hearing that from you, and especially because it is something that we all struggle with from time to time, having that internal voices, maybe telling us that we're not good enough, but at the same time, we want to follow uh, what we really like and our passions.
1: Well, listen, you know what? I'll give you an, an a, just a short vignette example here. I had the... Um, Great, great honor of being um, inducted into the Order of Canada a few years ago. And I remember going there and just, you know, standing in awe of the other recipients. And the one thing I learned about those individuals, which I think goes back to the question you've just asked, which is not one of them ever set out to get the Order of Canada, nobody there did. They just loved what they were doing, whether they were a world-class athlete whether they were a world-class artist, whether they were a scientist um, or quite frankly, whether they were someone who was spent their life in the service of others through volunteerism, they just loved it. In fact, they were there somewhat incredulous that they had been given this honor because they just did that because I don't need this honor. That, to me, is the epitome um, of what we're all trying to find, right? Which is that one thing that drives you where you don't need external stimuli to tell you you're doing well. You just do it because you know it's the right thing to do for you. That, to me, epitomizes it all.
0: For sure. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Bandari, for taking the time to meet with me today. It was a really awesome interview. I'm sure students are going to love this interview and uh, all the advice that he gave them. For all of you guys listening, make sure to check out our podcast platform available on Heart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and make sure to check out our social media at science section for the latest updates on our events, projects, and interviews.